Hello, and welcome to the Functionally Enlightened Podcast with Dr. Sharon Sarita. We interview well-respected medical and functional practitioners, as well as patients who have overcome disabling chronic conditions, such as dysautonomia, and reclaimed their health. These enlightened guests provide helpful tips on managing chronic pain and illnesses using a combination of traditional and whole-body healing modalities. If you're interested in natural healing and quality of life improvement, you're in the right place. Thank you for listening to today's episode. everybody. Today's special guest is Dr. Zaidemann. Dr. Zaidemann has been practicing functional medicine and activator method chiropractic technique at North Florida Spine and Wellness since 2012 and took over the role of clinic owner in 2017. He obtained his Bachelor of Arts degree at Florida State University and then went on to obtain his Doctorate of Chiropractic Medicine at Palmer College. Dr. Zaidemann uses a multifaceted approach including chiropractic adjustments, soft tissue mobilization, neuromuscular re-education, custom orthotics, designed clinical nutrition, and rehabilitation exercises, among other things. Dr. Zaidemann also has special interest in treating autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and other childhood developmental disorders with cutting-edge drugless functional neurological rehabilitation that focuses on the root cause of these disorders. Dr. Zaidemann is a third-generation Floridian, and he and his wife, Kristen, have two young children. Dr. Zaidemann, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to begin by asking, what drew you to the field of functional neurology? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. When I was starting in my practice, you know, I started doing just your general chiropractic. I was working in a practice that was already doing some functional medicine, and that was a great interest to me. We would often see children who either had ADHD, autism more frequently um, because there is an interest in using more functional medicine for those issues. But honestly, it, it came when our son, when he was about a year and a half, he lost all of his words. He just stopped talking. He wasn't uh, talking a lot at that point, but everything he had, he lost very suddenly. And that drew me into that field because as I was working on him from the functional medicine perspective, we definitely did that. And he ended up being diagnosed with something called PANDAS, um, which is an autoimmune disorder that affects the brain. And that was helpful, but I, I soon found that I was hitting walls. I couldn't quite make next steps with him, or we were repeatedly treating kind of the same things. And frankly, I read a, a book called Disconnected Kids by uh, Dr. Robert Melillo, who was recommended to me by a, a colleague. And it made a lot of sense. It talked a lot about how, you know, with these developmental disorders, there is basically what we call functional disconnectivity. So parts of the brain are either underwired or underregulated, and the hemispheres don't talk to each other. And that really made sense to me because as I looked at autism, as I looked at ADHD, and uh, besides the pandas, our son did end up getting diagnosed with autism, that really hit home to me that when you do MRIs on these kids, they, they you generally, unless there's a true genetic disease going on behind it, there's really not um, structural issues. The, the cerebellum, the frontal lobes, all of these parts of the brain are structurally normal. They're just not wired properly. Um, and that's exactly what functional neurology does. It works to wire these systems that have not wired to begin with. We appreciate that clarification on what functional neurology really is. 
Generally, when people think of going to a chiropractor, they're not thinking that it's something that can address the neurological issues. And it's very sad that you had to go through this with your son. I know as a parent, that's one of the worst things to go through is when one of our children are ill. So I appreciate that. And I'm sure your family appreciates that you were such an advocate for your child and that you were using what you learned for your practice now and treating all of your clients. What were some of the things that you specifically learned during your training in functional neurology that you made sure to include in your practice? It's funny you say that because it's it, it's true. It was, you know, I'll be I'll be honest. At first, I was just angry. You know, I was uh, upset that we did all the things as far as, you know, making sure we used, gave, gave him nutrients. And we did so much that was proactive um, in his young stages. And, you know, we still kind of ended up where we were, but then, then quickly, I, I've realized this is not not a curse. It's it's actually something to not only help him but help others. And there's not enough people doing this type of work, to be honest with you. But you know, I really think uh, I think the biggest thing that struck me not only as being able to work with functional neurology to help these kids, but to, in what I learned from Dr. Malillo um, and his training was, especially early on, look at primitive reflexes. These are the very first marker we have of neurodevelopment. So we have good guidelines on when these reflexes appear, when they go away, and when they're still there past those times, we know those parts of the brain aren't wiring at the time they're supposed to be. Unfortunately, the CDC has changed some of these milestones. Like for instance, crawling is no longer considered a milestone in development, which is just insane to me. But uh, these are things that frankly, pediatricians don't check. If something's a little bit delayed or a parent is um, concerned about something, most of your pediatricians are, are gonna say, well, he might just be a little behind, it's a little slower to, to pick up everything. And that's nonsense. There's, there's things we can measure. Um, and I think the most important one is primitive reflexes. Yeah, I see that wait and see approach happening a lot in the traditional um, Western medicine. When you're looking at your child's case, for example, you started looking at functional markers, I'm sure. And what other things did you see kind of like a red flag? Well, the biggest red flag in, in his case is a little bit unique because we have the pandas lay, layered on that. And essentially, if you know people don't understand what pandas is, it's becoming more known in, in pandas and pans because it can um, traditionally it's, it's related to uh, strep infections. So um, some kids will get strep throat. That infection will trigger a reaction in the immune system where the immune system will actually attack um, parts of the brain just on your typical autoimmune disorder. And I'll never forget when he was sick. I mean, we were like, who is this child? I mean, he was inconsolable, even after some antibiotics, which is not our first go-to treatment, but sometimes in these cases you have to. And then finally, we were blessed actually with a nurse practitioner who, who identified it, which was super <laughs> unusual, frankly, for a more allopathic provider to identify that. And Within 15 minutes of an IM injection of antibiotics, I mean, the kid was totally different. Uh, and so that that was um, that that complicates what we looked at. Uh, we have an autoimmune disorder that's inhibiting his development, so we had to look at things like organic acid testing, which is a really cool test that can break down how the body is working at the mitochondria level. So how you're making energy. You know, people we forget that 
we think about energy to grow and all those types of things, but we don't really think about the brain developing also takes cellular energy. And so if the mitochondria are not operating effectively because of inflammation or toxins, um, it'll pick up mold markers, um, nutritional deficiencies. You know, you need CoQ10 and B vitamins and all those things to make ATP. Um, that test kind of covers all of that. So it's kind of a nice, um, you know, see the whole body uh, from a from a grand scale. Now, it doesn't get real specific on things. So a lot of times we'll have to follow up with other testing, maybe a stool test or, you know, look at the microflora or, you know, yeast overgrowth or bacterial overgrowth. But it, it kind of gets you in the right lane. And so that was a really good test that we did. One completed as well, the oat, right? Organic right, acid. oats, right, oats. Are, and it does have microtoxin um, markers in there, doesn't it? It does. And you know, we had a little flood in our house, so we had mold exposure. We thought we caught it quick, but you know, as I went back, it goes back to you trying to do all the right things. So we did cloth diapers and actually we had a little sprayer for the toilet that, that helped us do cloth diapers more efficiently. Well, it was a little defective and it was leaking. Okay. And I, I noticed it when it, the leak became significant and you could feel the water under the floor. But when we uh, went to remediate it, I mean, it was all over the house and we had put those floors in. So we know it wasn't there before. So this was probably a slow leak. And the more I look back at it, we probably had some mold issues ongoing before we actually detected it. And those are tests that we ended up doing too later on. Mycotoxin tests. He had mycotoxins. He also had glyphosate, a lot of some chemicals, you know, that's the Roundup chemical. And that was, that was probably the most frustrating because, you know, the, I, I went out of my way. We didn't use that in our yard. We didn't use companies that used anything like that. And as I was doing some research, the issue was other people had lived in this house. They had used it likely. And it stays in the ground for years. So when your child is just a child and runs outside barefoot, guess what? They can absorb that stuff um, through their skin. It's, it's just a unfortunate complication we have to uh, fight against in our society. Absolutely. It's airborne and every one spring, even if not directly on your property, it's going to reach you like the, the wind, That's correct. especially in the urban settings. Mile wise, it can spread pretty far with your son and with your clientele. Well, first, let's talk about your general clientele. I imagine you get a lot of these rare cases or these difficult cases with chronically ill, and you also deal with the general healthy public, how much of your practice kind of is catered to that chronically ill world? It's hard to say a percentage on that for sure. I, I would definitely say it's a, a, a high amount. You know, most people, I'm not the first line, um, especially when you go into the functional neurology and functional medicine world. I usually get people when everything else has failed, <laughs> which which is uh, sometimes a little bit daunting. I, I, I don't think about it much. Um, honestly, I just kind of do my thing. But it's most people go to the GI specialist, they go to the rheumatologist, they go to the neurologist. And it's not even that these people, therapies fail. It's most of these people, no one does anything. It's It's incredible. It's like at least you, if you don't fall into a category of a diagnosis where a drug is a guideline for your diagnosis, then literally in general, the allopathic side kind of puts their hand, throws their hands up and says, 
I'm not sure what to do. And they kind of say, good luck and, and move on. And so that's, that's kind of the reality of our, our medical system. And it's not that these doctors don't want to help. I, I really believe that. I don't think that's it at all. I think that they just are trained to, to treat the diagnosis and within a guideline. And they're not really trying to figure out what's what's dysfunctioning. Most people, you can feel crappy when everything's just dysfunctioning, if that makes sense. And there's just not the training to figure that out. So, you know, when you start doing this type of work, most of your patients end up being chronically ill. Now we get our acute chiropractic patients who, you know, we're out in the yard and you know, threw their back out. That's that's plenty of our practice. But most of the people are there because no one's even tried to help them. I can attest to that being on the receiving end of treatments. Uh, I did see multiple specialists. I want to say over 13, even while I'm approaching the functional medicine aspect and lifestyle changes and things like that. I still follow up with the Western medicine, like cardiology, to make sure everything's structurally intact. But the significance in the functional medicine and just obtaining overall functional health is more evident when you pursue things that are looking at the body holistically. So you have your, your less problematic symptoms. And in my case, it would be something like temperature dysregulation. And then right. the more problematic things like syncope and nausea 24-7. You see the wide range of symptoms, especially like we talked about the chronically ill patients. How do you ease them into a treatment? And what kind of protocols would you start to work on with the sensitive population? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think number one is just listening. I have learned the more I've been practiced, just allowing the patient to tell their story is one of the most therapeutic things I do. And a lot of times, you know, patients have gone from specialist to specialist and they've, they get that, you know, maybe five minutes to tell something that's been going on for 30 years. So that, you know, if, if that's been happening to you, it's hard to tell the progression of the, of this issue that they're suffering from in that short amount of time. And just being able to do that, I think is, is number one. And that, that I think opens the door for them because when you have these chronic issues, it's never a, a quick fix. It's not something that we generally can do one thing over a few weeks and it's going to fix the problem. It's usually multifaceted, hence the holistic approach. You know, it could be even GI issues are such a, a classic example. If your vagus nerve is not firing the way it should be, then your GI issues can be neurologic and physical with gut flora imbalance, food sensitivities, all of those different things. So it gets complicated. So you have to be able first to get the patient on board to go through that journey because you're going to peel off layers. You're going to have to look at different types of tests, different avenues of treatment. To me, the very first step is listening to them so they feel, frankly, that trust with you so they can uh, go go through the, <laughs> the links of things they're going to have to do because they're going to have to do things that aren't easy and they don't necessarily want to do. And then the other thing I would say that's very important early on is to try as much as you can to objectively find answers for them. So uh, an example is, you know, if I find um, do heart rate variability that can show low vagus nerve tone, or balance testing or stool testing or try to identify some areas where we can check off because you know with these multifaceted approaches it's great it's good but then you kind of can get lost in the weeds of am i improving here am i improving there and it gets discouraging especially when you've been dealing for something for a long time so if you can place objective data 
to show improvement in different areas of treatment, then that helps build confidence. And, and frankly, if the patient doesn't think they're going to improve, they're probably not going to improve. The mind is very powerful in that aspect. Do you also include in, in your treatment protocols, like the limbic system retraining component of things? Absolutely. Um, and that's a great example. So we do some work, you know, just what I learned with trying to treat kids, it, it has spilled over into adults. I mean, it's the same brain, right? And anxiety is a, a great example. So when we see anxiety, we might have poor vagus nerve tone. We often have vestibular issues, that inner ear balance. And then it's the inhibition of the limbic system. So that frontal lobe, right, inhibits that, uh, that limbic system, that, that omlegata hijack, as, as it's called. And you get into these issues all the time, where is it the chicken or the egg, right? So why not treat both? And so if I have a person with anxiety and I see an HRV, a heart rate variability test where the, the vagus nerve looks like it's not doing well, the vestibular system's not doing well, I'm not going to assume their frontal lobes can inhibit all this. So if I, I can get all that better and they still just be as anxious. So we'll often treat all of those loops so we can cover all of our bases there. And, but that is, that is huge to um, not only try to work on the limbic system itself, especially with people who have like PTSD, but you have to help the frontal lobes inhibit it. That's, that's another big part. And you know, we're in a stressful world with cortisol bombarding us all the time. And that ends up being problematic to inhibit that system. Right. So you work a lot with the vagus nerve and some of our listeners might not be very familiar with it, but it does innervate every major system of the body. Can you give us some examples of um, ramifications to a dysregulated vagus nerve? Absolutely. I mean, it's probably my favorite thing to treat now because it, like you said, it impacts so many systems. You know, it's, an, it's a nerve that comes out of your brainstem. So it's one of those cranial nerves. It goes to the heart and helps control heart rate, rhythm, blood pressure. It goes to your gut. So when you, that's a, that's a big uh, buzzword now, right? The, the gut brain axis, that's all mediated through the vagus nerve and you know functional a lot of people who are strong on the functional medicine side and that's the main thing they do that's when they say the gut the gut the gut and that's so true because the gut impacts the vagus nerve going upstream but you got to realize too that that is a actually a two-way street so the vagus nerve comes down from the brain into the gut so the motility how fast a lot of people with like gastroparesis which is just the the gi tract not moving as fast as it should that is the vagus nerve that mediates that. And so you have to, to treat both ends of the spectrum. You got to not only get it from the gut up, but from the brain down. It uh, has sensory branches in the ear. Um, I think that's why a lot of acupuncture points are in the ear. I don't think that's by mistake. And it also does a lot of our control of swallowing. I mean, this thing's all over the place. And you know, there's a fascinating, I mean, this, this could be a whole, whole separate uh, discussion, but there's a fascinating theory. I, I think it's closer to a law than a theory now, but polyvagal theory by, um, developed by Stephen Porges about how the vagus system develops. There's actually two parts of the vagus system, the dorsal and ventral, and one is a little bit more primitive than the other. And so sometimes these imbalances in these systems are developmental. So we're born with this very primitive fight and flight parasympathetic system where when we get under stress, we more go into a freeze response 
which we will often see with people with, with PTSD, and also children with autism, because that system hasn't developed in the case of PTSD or head injuries. It's been disconnected, essentially. And so this is a, not only an important nerve for our mental health and our physical health, also our immune system. I mean, it's a big part when you get sick or you uh, hit a virus that gets into your body. Your sympathetic nervous system, which is regulated by that vagus nerve, is what activates your immune system. So if, if you have over overly in that fight and flight mode and you get a virus, that's going to lead you up to even developing autoimmune disease because that immune system can overreact since it's already overactivated. So th this is probably one of the most significant nerves in our body. And it contributes to that vicious cycle, as you mentioned, once you're in that sympathetic nervous system and you can't turn it off, then the illnesses seem to pile on top of each other. Um, you get multiple diagnoses. Some Absolutely. patients, they don't recover because they go down that rabbit hole. Your practice and other doctors that, that do holistic treating, it's important to get the word out. There is a way to heal from these chronic conditions or if not fully heal, at least restore a quality of life back. Again, going back, you, you talked a little bit about the gut health and we mentioned about your, your overly sensitive clients. How do you ease them into the treatment in terms of detoxing possibly or the lifestyle changes? Yeah, I mean, that's huge. One, you gotta make it practical. You know, in a perfect world, I look at a condition and I'm saying, man, I can hit it with this, 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 and this, and that would be really effective. But you also have to meet the patient where they're at. If they don't feel well, if you know they have a condition that they don't have the energy or the motivation to engage in a really aggressive treatment plan, you're going to fail because they're just not going to be able to do it. So that really goes patient by patient, to be honest with you. Um, lifestyle changes are probably the most um, significant because it's what they're doing on a daily basis. So, you know, if I, if I have someone who's in this mode and they're eating McDonald's three times a day, that's going to hinder care. We're not going to get far from what they're putting in their body. So there are things that we have to address there. I try to do it in a very, like I said, a very practical manner. And I, I mean that in this sense that if you're doing that, I'm not going to say, okay, you can't ever eat McDonald's ever again that is most likely not going to work. The patient's not going to be able to just cut that off. There are people who can, who do really well with a cold turkey approach, but that's more the minority of people, I believe. So you try to create new habits. We might just say, okay, why don't we cut out breakfast at McDonald's? Okay, let's, let's do just, you know, just some, some eggs or maybe some oatmeal, you know, whatever, whatever may fit the patient, depending on what we need to do. And so we start doing little steps at a time and those little steps turn into big leaps over time. And I, I think that's probably the most important to do thing to do from a lifestyle perspective. The other thing is, and, and this is not always easy, is to try to identify a primary goal. And that might be, we're going to improve your balance, or that might be, we're going to get rid of your primitive reflexes, or that might be, we're going to get you having more regular bowel movements. You know, it's finding something that we can check off our list and say, hey, we've, we've gotten this better. And, and they may feel very little improvement from that check mark, but it's something that we've accomplished and we can now start to get a feeling for how significant that problem was to their overall disorder. If they start journaling practice of some kind and they mark down what things have improved over time, that also builds their motivation to keep going with, with the treatment protocols. That's a very good tool. Absolutely. And because a lot of people too, it's like they have different types of symptoms and they 
they don't always happen consistently. They can be sporadic. So you can have someone go from having 10 migraines a week to seven migraines a week. And that might seem insignificant because if they're not journaling it because they don't really differentiate the difference between seven and 10. But in reality, that's a, that's a 30% decrease, right? So that's significant. So that is a, a, a great tool that we use a lot. And for detox practices, um, I, well, not even detox, going back to lifestyle, there's a few things that I do daily, and that includes light therapy. Um, every morning, I, my biological clock is shifted. So I'm up in the morning around 4.30 every day, no matter what. And I use a, um, a lamp that's 10,000 lux minimum. So I use that daily. Um, I do my gratitude journaling, listen to something motivational, and I always do meditation morning and night. Those things in the lifestyle. And then the detox processes that I'm using for my personal health are a sauna, infrared sauna, and I use full spectrum infrared sauna. And I also try to do the castor oil packs. I'm starting to look into binders. So I want to know what your thoughts are on these type of detox practices and the use of binders. Yeah, detox. There's about a million opinions on that, aren't there? Yeah. There are some things that I love. There are some things um, I, I don't know that they're as helpful as they seem to be popularity-wise. But So, for instance, infrared sauna is awesome. I think that is a great tool, kind of using your body's natural systems. And that's kind of where the camp I fall in is trying to utilize our natural detoxification systems. So, for some people... Even genetically, and you know, you can go into the epigenetics of it all, but some people have weaknesses in those detoxification pathways. So that's always a good tool to do is try to patch those pathways. And if you're not sure, then you know, supporting them doesn't hurt, kind of thing. So that can be a lot of methylated B vitamins, that can be things like glutathione, selenium, different nutrients that help those detoxification pathways. Calcium glucurate, which actually is helpful for breaking down estrogens, which has consequences not only with detoxification, but hormone balance and even cancers like breast cancer. Um, so those, I always like to support the natural pathways. I'm not a big fan of chelation. There's probably a time and place for chelation, especially with really acute toxicity. But sometimes you over bombard those detoxification systems with that and we all have toxins, you know, there's, there's no avoiding it, especially in the world we live in now. But chelation seems to be pretty rough on kidneys, on the liver. You don't always get it out. And that, you know, that's where you can talk into binders. Binders you have to be careful with as well, especially in the long term, because especially things like activated charcoal, there's other ones that aren't, you know, bentonite clay is not as bad on this, but you can absorb your, your nutrients as well, your minerals. And so there's, there's all balance to that. You know, I think it's going to depend on the case, the level of toxicity. I would say that someone I'm, I'm treating here for toxicity issues is going to be different than someone who, someone in Ohio was just, you know, right next door to the train that derailed. That's going to be a different uh, treatment perspective in general as just trying to filter out our our day-to-day -day exposure i think infrared sauna is awesome supporting those detoxification pathways glutathione is probably my favorite nutrient uh, to use it's a challenging nutrient to use because you don't absorb it in the stomach very well so you have to either use liposomal 
under the tongue, use things like NAC to help you produce your own glutathione or intravenous glutathione. That's a good method. There's also an under, a very underrated method. You can actually don't use uh, liposomal, but you can actually use liquid glutathione in a nebulizer, especially with like asthma and you know chronic upper respiratory stuff and absorb it through the lungs. And that is a super effective way to get glutathione in as well. Yeah. That's very interesting. I didn't know that that was a mechanism of intake. Yeah, that's something more recent I've, I've been doing. And especially um, post-COVID, that has really helped people recover from some of their ongoing shortness of breath and inflammation in the lungs. I've had kids with asthma that's pretty much eliminated their asthma doing that. It's been more effective than I even anticipated. I imagine you go pretty low and slow with these extremely sensitive patients. Have your clients experienced Herx reactions from doing some of the methods? Yes, absolutely. And I go from a treatment perspective that I assume every patient's going to have that. Only because, again, it comes down to <laughs> trust in the provider. And if you, the first thing you do is give them a Herx reaction, if they don't know that's coming or they're not familiar with it, then that, that already sets that whole process backwards quite a bit. So I, I always try to assume that. So we'll also always give what we call drainers, so things that kind of help lymph drainage and um, detox pathways to try to reduce the, the possibility of that happening. And I'm always going to start off at a slower dose and build up. Some patients, you can kind of anticipate that's going to happen because they'll say that. I mean, they'll say, you know, whenever I take, I ever get a medication, I need like a fourth of the normal dose. That's a red flag right there that, you know, a patient's probably more likely to have that type of issue. But a lot of people don't don't follow the handbook and anyone, we try to do that off the bat. It might slow down your progress a little bit, but it's always nice not to to have those setbacks. So that's that's not a good feeling to have that die off, that detox flu almost, I like to call it, because it, it lowers your, your motivation to continue through the process. And that's a good point with these conditions. Like anyone who does have a Herx or anyone who just generally doesn't see improvement is there one thing that they struggle most with in maintaining compliance with your, your treatment process? That's an interesting question. Sure, they, they certainly will. I mean, the, usually the more debilitating, the more chronic the condition, compliance is, is always an issue. I think the best tool that I use for that is addressing it and asking the patient, is this going to be practical for you? You know, trying to be transparent and saying, hey, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Tell me if you can do it. There are times where it's like, I understand this compliance is going to be an issue, but we have to do this. There are some things that, that are somewhat non-negotiable. But that's, I would say, a minority of the time. One of my better examples, even when I treat kids, because, you know, the whole basis of on how I treat kids with developmental disorders is we're trying to grow the brain. We're trying to connect the brain, which is neuroplasticity, the, the body's ability to make new connections. And to do that, though, you have to do the stimulation over and over and over and over again. You can't do it once a week. You can't do it once every other week. You know, it has to be repetitive for that wiring to happen. I think the main thing I, I try to communicate to patients is it doesn't necessarily have to be 100%, but you got to do something. So even if I'm what I'm telling you, you're only doing it 25%, that's a step in the direction and then make goals to increase that. Kind of be like knocking over a soda machine. You don't do it in one push necessarily. You got to rock it back and forth a few times, giving them the, 
you know, encouraging them, okay, well, you weren't able to do it as much as we needed to, but you at least did it this amount of time. You know, instead of doing it twice a week, let's try to go for three times a week next week. Give those really attainable goals, I think, is is the most the most powerful thing. And then also being aware and empathetic to the challenges that they're going to have complying with some of the issues, I think. I love that approach. You meet the patient where they're at, but also have your non-negotiables because you know that certain things need to take place for them to meet the, the next goal. On the converse of that, what is one thing that you would like to recommend to not all of your patients, but most of your patients that you know would help them? Yeah, the, probably the number one thing everyone can do, food. We don't have so much control over our environment, the air quality, the water quality. There's limitations to what you can avoid. Processed food affects everybody. It it creates inflammation. So whether you come in for a back problem or a chronic health issue, quality of the food is probably the most significant change that you can make. We can't always control, you know, what chemicals went in the food, but we can educate ourselves, get more organic foods, which is still not perfect, obviously, but we can make the most impact in that area. And I would say secondary to that, and probably equally important is movement. Probably the biggest impacts on on the health of Americans is one, the quality of food that we eat. And two is the lack of movement. We're very sedentary. We often have lots of desk jobs where we're sitting for long periods of time. Movement is how the brain stays wired. There's been studies where they've seen children in orphanages who've just been, you know, especially in in some third world countries where they have just been in a crib their first years of life. And they will develop autism or developmental disorders because they didn't move. They didn't have tummy time. They didn't crawl. The brain grows by movement. The brain is maintained by movement. And that sensory input that happens as a result. Dr. Melillo actually wrote a textbook about brain development from an evolutionary perspective. And it's really interesting. It makes sense because some of the arguments that I hear sometimes with evolution, what was the advantage of us walking on two feet? What advantage did that give us? And what he makes the argument in that book and quite well is that change in in movement, that bipedal movement helped make more complex brain networks because it was a more complex type of movement. So I think if I had to nail down to two things, people, every patient I'm going to recommend, it's diet and movement. I agree wholeheartedly. We could go into a whole nother episode to discuss the nutrition component. And I know you offer designed clinical nutrition, but just briefly, is there a specific diet that you're more comfortable with or, for example, getting someone into ketosis or intermittent fasting? Is there anything that you are more comfortable healing to chronically ill? Sure. I think everyone's different. I never believe that one way is the way for everybody. Um, Frankly, it's just never the case. So, you know, I, I think in general, there's some general guidelines to look at. And even genetically, there's there's some evidence that genetically some people will do better with keto, some people will do better with paleo, some people are going to do better with just a traditional Mediterranean type of diet. But there are some commonalities through all of those. And one is, you know, getting rid of processed foods, getting rid of refined sugars, actually eating food, I think, is the big thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff we eat isn't is like kind of made up food. I don't know how else to describe it. It's if I have someone with a history of seizures, ketogenic diets are definitely going to be probably more up their alley. It's going to hit more health benefits for them. I think most of the diets you hear about out there that do different things have their place and are good for different people. But 
I don't want to say that there's one that is I'm going to recommend um, all the time. Even I've seen people really do well on the on the carnivore diet. I I will say though, any diet that limits big groups of foods forever, unless there's like really significant food sensitivities, like for instance, gluten or dairy or something like that, it's probably not going to be ideal for the long term because it will pigeonhole you into eating the same types of food all the time. And you're more likely to get food sensitivities to what you're eating when you do that all the time. So food diversity, I think is important. Eating whole foods, like I said, and then just avoiding those refined sugars and processed foods, additives, dyes, especially in kids. I mean, the, the evidence on dyes and how that affects the brain is evident. But I think those are the, the main take-home points. I look at more from some general perspectives because everybody is different. Absolutely. And we're kind of lucky in the sense that we can, not only if you have local farms, but we can have shipped to us high quality animal protein and produce that's not been genetically modified or even treated with pesticides, herbicides, or whatever. So there are now becoming more popular these types of farms. And I think that they need to be called out more. Dutch Meadows is a good one. Northport actually has a good amount of more organic, good farms. There's also, they're a little bit more further north Georgia, but especially for grass-fed and pasture-raised, you know, more animal protein products. White Oak Pastures is awesome. I mean, they do everything about as perfect as you can. We are lucky where we're at. We have some good... Um, resources for that, no doubt. And I'll go back in the show notes and add in some of those locations. On that, you've shared with us a lot of information on how to treat the body holistically. And it's so much importance for people to learn more and to actually advocate for their own health or their family members, as in your case. So how can people reach you to either work with you or learn more about the, the treatments that you Absolutely. Well, you know, we are we are in Tallahassee, Florida. Our website is www.healthytallahassee.com. And uh, certainly we offer um, a lot of different ways to connect and treat. We do a lot of distant patients. I have patients everywhere from, uh, I have some patients in New Jersey right now, some patients in St. Louis. So we do do some virtual stuff as we can. Some things are better in the office, but uh, go to that website and um, you can, you know, make an appointment through there and we can work all over the country, really. Great. Thanks for sharing that. We'll include that in the show notes as well. And once again, Dr. Zetemann, we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, I was really flattered you even asked me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for being with us. And to the listeners, hope you'll join us next time. Dr. Sharon Sarita is not a medical professional and is not providing healthcare, medical or nutritional therapy services, or attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any physical, mental, or emotional issue. The information provided in this podcast is for the informational purposes only and is not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek advice from your physician or other qualified healthcare provider before undertaking a new health regimen. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you heard in this podcast. Do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your medical or mental health provider.